What a start for Brad Hughes. 180 metres to go. Looking good. Oh, what a shot. What a shot from Brad Hughes. Oh, my goodness. What a finish for Bradley Hughes. Easy number five, joining the lead. An amazing victory. For the second time, Brad Hughes wins the Australian Masters. This time by five strokes. A big welcome to this episode on Bradley Hughes Golf. In this podcast, I go back in time to chat with one of golf's greatest characters and greatest golfers, Doug Sanders. Born in 1933 in Cedartown, Georgia. In 1956, his golf career really began to blossom when he won the Canadian Open as an amateur. A rare feat that, to my recollection, has only been achieved on the PGA Tour by Scott Verplank and Phil Mackelson since that time. Doug was nicknamed the Peacock of the Fairways for his flashy dress sense and flamboyant colours he wore on the course. Sanders won 20 official PGA Tour events, including marquee tournaments such as the Western Open, the Greater Greensboro Open, the Kemper Open, the Bob Hope Classic, the Colonial, and he was also a two-time winner of the Durrell event. His major championship resume was impressive, with 13 top 10 finishes in majors. His best finish in the Masters was a fourth place. He was a runner-up in the US Open, twice a runner-up in the British Open Championship, and also finished a runner-up in the PGA Championship. Doug Sanders was an avid supporter of junior golf. His Doug Sanders Junior International helped unearth the talents of Steve Elkington, amongst others. I was fortunate to win the Australian section of his championship in 1984. And what a great experience. I travelled to Scotland to compete in the world final against a European and an American competitor. It was my first trip overseas and allowed me a first-hand experience of what my future in golf may hold. Sanders was also one of the few players ever to have a PGA Tour event bear his name when he hosted his own Doug Sanders Celebrity Classic on the Champions Tour near his home in Houston, Texas. Doug has been around the greats of the game for over 60 years, and I can't wait to hear his insights into his career and the people he came in contact with throughout his life. I hope you enjoy my interview with legend golfer and my friend, Doug Sanders. Welcome, Doug. I'm really pleased to have you here. I'm going to start out with a question asking you, what gave you the belief that you could make a career as a professional golfer? Urge to be able to be do better in golf. And finally, I work all the time and the coach that I look into him and he was helping me an awful lot. And when I was 17, I shot 29 in the high school tournament. They said, well, maybe this kid can play. They sent me off to qualify for the National Junior Championship. And I went to Augusta, Georgia, and they had 48 states. They took about four, six, eight, ten players from each state. And I qualified and I went to Durham, North Carolina. And 10 men gave me $10 apiece. My uh, train fare was $28.50. We stayed at Duke University, and we played two matches a day for about five or six days, whatever it was. And I was fortunate to win the championship. And they made a movie about it. It was called The Boy Next Door. <laughs> it was a 30-minute show that showed in in front of all the big movie uh, theaters. And it was about me winning the championship. And I didn't even know that they were even doing it. 
one night I had a, uh, my buddy, we were at a drive-in theater, and we both had Dave House in the back seat. He said, Doug, isn't that you up there? And I looked up on the big screen, and there was Doug Sanders making the putt. And we was talking about me. And that's the way I got my start, and that's one reason that I feel like I owe so much to the game of golf and the junior golf. And to have some people back, because without those 10 men giving me 10 miles apiece and having me go up there to play, I never would have been able to win 20 championships as I have today. Absolutely. I mean, you did a lot of good stuff for junior golf. That's where I, I met you at through playing in your Doug Sanders International and I uh, had a lot of great players come through that. Is that why you uh, wanted to start up a junior event to give something back for what happened with you? Yes, I do, because you know they say when you die, the only thing you can with you is what you gave away. And I have lived a life that has been unbelievable to play golf with peasants and king and all the things around the world. I mean, it's just been unbelievable. And I owe that. If it hadn't been for that junior golf tournament, maybe I would have done it in another way, but at least that was my that was my kicking point to get me started. And uh, they knew I could win. So all the colleges wanted me to go to school. I went to the University of Florida. And after three years, I had to make a change in my life. Either I had to give up golf to study to graduate or give up study to play golf. And I saw things as the man who dares. God love it. Just a man who decides what he wants to achieve and will work till his dream comes true. The man who will alter his course when he must and bravely begin something new. The man who is determined to make his world better. Who is willing to learn and to lead. The man who keeps trying to do his best is a man who knows how to succeed. And I put forth that. And my desire was just to play. And I worked hard. My hands would bleed. And I'd get up in the morning and I'd soak in the hot water to rip them open with it. I could pick up the fork and everything when I was in high school. And my first tournament I played in, the first tournament, was a big major tournament called the Canadian Open. And I went there and I won the championship. I beat Dalton Swall in the playoff. So all the companies knew that I could, I could win because I just won. So whenever I turned pro, we had to wait six months. We were neither a pro and amateur for six months. If you didn't make good on six months, you could go back to an amateur. So when I won the Canadian Open, it was $2,400. Of course, I didn't get the money as an amateur. And I went down to South America, and then during that six months' time, with Roberto Stevenson, Bill, and Palmer, and a bunch of players, I finished ninth, seventh, second, first in the four tournaments I played in. And so now my first win was the Western Open. Now, they, all the companies wanted me because they knew I could win, and I signed with Wilson Sporting Goods, and they paid me $5,000. And I think that's the highest rate that anybody they paid at that particular time. But it was just a way, you know, to get started, and everything I did, it, it moved, and I, again, I kept thinking about junior golf, and I wanted to start something other. So that's whenever I started the junior golf and many years ago, and I started out having players from all six uh, continents and bringing them in from Dallas, Texas and played and helped them get scholarships and all the things and it was just a way to give back and I think you know there's an old saying if you never look this up the man in the mirror and you can't ever prove him and but when you go home at night when you've done something good to help somebody you look up in the mirror and you can wink at yourself 
and everything else. And that really makes you a proud man because you know you've given back something other that has been so good to you. Absolutely. I remember a quote you said about uh, you've lived, uh, you know, you don't value your life on the amount of money you've got. It's the, value, uh, the amount of people you have at the end. So you've obviously had a lot of friendships over the years and uh, very wealthy in that regard. Well, you know, as I've often said, I weigh measure wealth by friendship, not by dollars and cents. And I think a friend is so valuable to have. You know, to be able to have someone that you know that tells you things. And all the people I played out with the presents and everything, I had them to come to my tournament. When I started the senior tournament in Houston, uh, Texas, three years before I could even play in it. I had all the great celebrities from Bob Hope and Andy Williams and Ingebert Humberding, Bob Lulay, Victor Mon, Willie Nelson, Charlie Pride, the Gatling Brothers, Roy Troy. I mean, it just went on and on and on. And then I I had um, 36 celebrities and 36 pros. Palmer, Camino, and Flair, and everybody. Three years before I was even eligible to play in it. And that, too, gave me a lot of great pleasure to be able to be around those guys. And their word was their bond. Whenever they told you something, I had the President of the United States to come. First time the sitting president ever played in the tournament. I had he and George, George Sr. and George W. And the two presidents, to, I mean, two Bushes to play. The next year I had Bush and um, the vice president, Ben Quayle. The next year, Gerald Ford came and played, and Bush came out and worked a couple of holes. He had some other things he had to do. But, I mean, to be around those people, and whenever they told you something other, it was, it was the truth. There's an old saying, so the difference between the winners and losers says, when a winner makes a mistake, he says, I was wrong. When a loser makes a mistake, it wasn't my fault. <laughs> says, the winner says, going to be a better way to do it, the way we're doing it. The loser says, that's the way it's always been done here. And there's so many of them, but one I like the most of all is a winner makes a commitment, a loser makes a promise. And I learned that. Whatever you say, whatever you listen to the press and everything, that's what, you don't have to go call them up again and say, now, Mr. President, you are coming now, aren't you? He tells you one time, put it down. That's the way it goes. And that's the way I've always tried to do my life. I would tell somebody something other, and I would not make a promise. I would make a commitment. The winner makes a commitment, and the loser makes a promise. So those are the type of things that I've lived a lot about and have made me to enjoy life a lot more than a lot of other people. So I'm very proud of being able to be around those people because, and then give back a little something other. And it's just, it gives you a thrill being able to know that you've helped someone along the way. Let's talk about your swing, Doug. Most people would say that you had a different type of swing. You know, it was a shorter backswing and a flatter type of backswing. Uh, were there any influences on that, you know, people-wise or growing up, and how did that bow about? Well, whenever I was a caddy, the caddies weren't allowed to uh, even hand you a club. You had to get out of the bag. But whenever I started to carry, they let me carry like two bags and they put the driver in a wedge or put her in the bag and I could carry them at a young age. But I would go down and I'd leave the drivers on the tee and I'd sneak all the gold over the hill and walk down the fairway and um, be able to see the balls if they knocked them up. But I'd take a little short swing and hit it down there about 20 or 30 yards or something and run down and pick them up. So I started out, because if I hit it and knocked it out of the the fairway, they had a hundred circles on one side, the creek and, and um, the bushes on the other side of the fairway. So you had to hit it straight. And so that got me started, and I kept doing that and built up my forearms and everything. 
But I think I probably have the most ideal swing for the weekend player that can exist. Because if you just, for example, I'm sitting down here and I'm, but if, if I took a ball and held it 10 feet above my shoe and dropped the ball, I might not hit it on my shoe. But if I took the ball about a foot above my shoe and dropped it, I know I'm going to be on top of it. So that's the way that my swing was. It was short and compact, but my wide stance gave me a lot more power. <clears throat> and it really made up for the length of going back. So I think for the person that's, that's just started, you don't want that John Daly swing. And because, you know, maybe you can hit a little further, maybe. But the thing you want to do is be able to hit it consistent. And that's the thing. It doesn't do you any good to go out there and hit a 940 yards one time, hit 80 yards the next time. Then you hit it 130 and you hit it 20. You're better off to hit it 90 yards every time. At least when you're 90 yards, you know what you're going to hit. But everybody seems to take more. They, they want to hit it harder and harder and harder. It was an old joke about the guy. I said, well, look, he says, swing it as hard as you can just in case you hit it. You know? <laughs> but my swing was, it was so compact and the short swing. And I knew every time I hit it, I was going to hit it the same distance each time. So that's uh, certainly has played off of me. And I would play weeks without missing a fairway. Of course, back when I played, you know, a tee shot, 265, 70 yards with a big tee shot. But compared to the day, you know, in that 320 or 30, whatever that might be. But again, I think if you wanted to start out uh, first and playing golf, you should get a shorter swing. And as you get a little older, you can you can make it a little longer as you want to. But you, but again, I think you're a lot better off short swing and a long follow through, and you could really know when you, where it's going to go. Absolutely, you get some uh, distance control. I mean, a lot of the time, you know, it's just a number on the club, isn't it? it doesn't really matter how far you hit anything, as as long as you know what yardage you can hit it. That's all you really need, isn't it? That's right. That's right. And it, it makes it so simple, you know, because you you're not hitting hard. Anything you do, you know. How many times a lot of these are just try to shoot a basketball, you're right underneath it, rather than being out there at, at, the, at, the, half, uh, at the half the court and try to get it in there. So you, with that shorter swing, you're a lot more consistent, a lot more accurate, and you can very seldom, you know, ever knock it out of bounds and all the other things. I can't, I can't recall how many balls I've knocked out of bounds. Probably, I don't know if I ever knocked. 20 balls out of bounds in my life, and most of that whenever I hit a tree or something other. <laughs> but again, that was my long game when I was single on the tour. They said the only time I ever left the fairway was just to get a phone number. <laughs> Pardon me? <laughs> you might have got more phone numbers than hitting the ball out of bounds. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I might have met more pretty women, you know, who was on that sideline. Well, I... <laughs> no, but it's been, it's been just great. And, and again, you know, when you go out there and you play all day long, and I remember one time I was playing in the, in the um, Florida, the uh, Florida Amateur, and there's a lot of great players in, uh, in Florida, and I was falling that too, and I used it all day. The first day I put in the first hole, I used it, and I shot 65. I used it next day, I shot 66. I used it next day, I shot 67. I have an 18-stroke lead going into the last day. Now, you think all the guys in colleges and all the things that people in Florida are good players, 18 stroke lead, and I used it the last day, and I had lost so much distance. I shot 72, the same ball, and I won the tournament 
about 18 strokes. You might be the only person so, ever used the same ball for an entire tournament. I, I didn't know you could even hit a ball, but, you know, it was. I lost about, oh, at least 30 yards in the last few holes because the last hole I used to have a driver to nine iron, and the last day, the fourth round, I had a driver and a six iron. So, but again, I just wanted to continue to play, and I was, you know, very fortunate that I had the ability to do that. So, but, the, you know, you have to really get out there, and you got to set goals that are hard to reach, but are reachable. And once you reach them, you got to have more and more goals. you got to have something to look forward to every day. And that's what pushed me and drove me to want something like bigger and better. Yeah, that's good advice. I, I, I actually remember caddying for you in uh, the Victorian Open in 1986 at Yarra Yarra. We, I, uh, you played as a celebrity in the event. And I remember how solid and straight you hit the ball then, obviously. And that, you know, you never lost that ability. Do you think your ball striking was your strength or you had a, a really good all-round game? Well, no, I think my game was the fact that I, with my short swing, I could maneuver the ball. If I had to hit a fade, I could hit it. If I had to hit a low, I hit I could do it. If I had to hook it. See, back in those days, when we first started, the greens were so hard. And a lot of times, you couldn't knock the ball right over the, the bunker and stop it on the green. So we'd have to hook it around and fade it around and make it bounce around. But those are things where there was a big advantage to me uh, with my wide stance my short swing, I could control that ball. And every time the wind blew, uh, the price of me would go down. But I was a good wind player. I won a lot of my tournaments, you know, on the beach side, with the, like Doral in Florida and, and different places, and Pensacola, Florida, a little of every place, like out in, in California. But it was a, had the ability to maneuver the ball, but my short swing was a big edge that I had. Well, obviously, uh, you know, for such a long career and you got to play with all the, the great champions of history, really, who in your mind really stuck out? Who were the best players you played with or had the hardest time of competing against, you know, and neck and neck? Well, I, you know, there was a lot of great players we had, but the guys that, that impressed me so much, one of the guys I think done more for the game of golf than anyone else is Arnold Palmer. Arnold, he was just a true champion in all walks of life. And I didn't ever hear Arnold say anything bad about anyone. I never heard anyone say anything bad about Arnold. He didn't like you, just say that your way. And Jack was such a great guy and very player. But there was a lot of great guys, but all of them was willing to give back something other. And I think that's the thing that, that counts. But I don't think there's anybody a better player on fast screens than Jack Nicklaus. That's one reason he won the key majors. And so was Tiger Woods. You know, yeah, well, he won 12 majors, I think. But all on fast greens. And Gary Player, I'll tell you a little story about Gary. We were down playing in, in the Seminole um, Country Club down in Florida. And I shot 66 against Hogan and Sneed and all that. And one time, I was in one day event. We went up to Lafayette, Louisiana, staying at the Oak Manor Motel. There's a little bar right across the street. We just went over there and had a beer. And we used to gamble an awful lot with the amateurs and among ourselves and everything, and especially one before we turned pro. And we made a lot more money from doing that than we did playing on the tour because you, 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 what could you make on the tour? You know, it was $15,000 for the whole purse. But anyway, I was sitting there with Gary Player, and 
I told him, Larry, and he called me, Larry. I said, Larry, would you take $250,000 and go back as an amateur and just keep the money you won gambling? He said, Larry, now this is 1958. He said, Larry, he said, I want to win all four major championships in my life. And I started to laugh at it. And I put my glass against his glass, and I said, you'll probably be the guy to, to do that. Now, not only was he the, that's the first time he was going to play on Cajun Classic. And now, not only did he win the four major tournaments, it only been in 1953 that Hogan became the second guy behind Gene Harrison to win the four majors. In 1953 is when he won the British Open the Carnegie. Gary Player was the next man to win the four major championships. Gary had that great desire and everything Gary did, he had that. He's done more semester push-ups. He said, I think he told me that he had drawn more mileage than any businessman in the, in the world uh, that they know of. But Gary does all of his sit-ups and push-ups, and he stays in great shape. He does it. I was out with him, you know, a couple of times and have dinner. Have you ever had uh, um, the surgery dinner, you know, at some banquet, and you had fish and chicken or fish and steak or whatever? What? Gary, I don't think Gary ever ate both of them together. <laughs> you don't eat one thing. He went around the world, as I understand, to all the places um, to find out what's the best way to stay in better shape and this and that and the other. And he is, I don't know of any person in the world is in the shape he's in. Yeah, he was a great ambassador, wasn't he? <laughs> he was a great ambassador for golf. You know, he, he he took his game all around the world and brought it to all different parts of the world that may never get the opportunity to see such level golf. So I've had the pleasure of talking to him a little bit. I reckon he's fantastic. He's about the most positive person I've ever met. Yeah, he was one of the nice You talk about swings and things. Sam Steed, he had one of the greatest swings ever been. And, of course... Needless to say, you don't certainly leave out Ben Hogan, which was one of the greatest all strikers I've ever known in my life. But um, but again, that you had Arnold and Jack and Jerry and Hogan. It's hard to find, you know, which one did this, but each one of them just had so much things in their mind. Now, Hogan, the only thing he had in his mind was to win. That's the only thing he wanted to do. He didn't devote his time to anybody else. I used to go there and ask him to sign photographs and things for me from a museum. And then he was just, he didn't want you to talk. He didn't want to talk. The only thing he wanted to do was to win, and that's what he did. He, he set that goal up and won all four major championships. Yeah, what, what did you think made his swing tick? Was it uh, anything special, or he just practiced a lot, or he just... Well, it was the way that he carried the ball through. He never turned it around. He never, you know, opened his club up, and but he, he kept the club on line a lot longer. It's like if you stand there with a drop ball in your hand or a ball in your hand and roll it right down that alley, uh, you it's going to roll straight down. But if you take it way back and then turn it around like you did in a, a tennis ball or something other. You never know which it's going to go. You might hit your target, but it might go on the left or right or whatever. But he had this swing that just kept that ball right down the right down the alley. Plus, the desire that he had to win made so much difference. I remember that he was a captain of the Ryder Cup team. I already won 15 turnovers before I was eligible. We had to wait five years when he turned pro to become a PGA member. And you couldn't be on the Ryder Cup team unless you were a PGA member. So and he was a captain. And he would stand there, he got up there the night, 
with all of us around there having dinner. And he says, gentlemen, we all looked at him. He says, one thing I want you to know, Ben Hogan does not want his name on that losing cup. You do understand, don't you? Yes, Captain. Yes, Captain. <laughs> and he came up to us in the night. That we had a big party before we played the next day, and the European team was there. And he got up and he says, you know, ladies and gentlemen, of all the times I played golf and everything, he says, I have never seen a team this great. He says, there's no team can beat this team. And here's the European people out there sitting there listening to this. But we did. I mean, we we did not want to go because he would come right up to you in the morning and say, you will win today, won't you, Doug? Yes, Captain. When he came in, he could walk right up in your face and says, you won, didn't you? You did not want to say no. <laughs> so, so we would just play it hard and we, we'd kill them. So he was a competitor was even not, not playing. He was a great competitor, even not playing. He just wanted victory or yes. th do the best he could in everything. Yes, yes. He was, that was a type of competitorship that makes you a winner, makes you a great champion as he had. Did you ever play with Hogan clubs? I know he was a pe perfectionist with that as well. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Did you ever use uh, Hogan's clubs, his line of clubs? He was a perfectionist at that, saying, you know, the story goes... No, no, I, no I did not. I, okay. I, Whenever I first signed with the Wilson Sporting Goods, I used Wilson. Then I went over with First Light, and they had my own line of clothes, I mean clubs. Okay. Then I went back and forth, you know, but I didn't ever play with any of the Hogan's clubs. When you uh, had these clubs, did you get to design any of it? Did you get input? Well, no, I didn't. That wasn't my uh, criteria, you know, was to be able to design. I would look at some other club. I liked it not, and I don't know what Hogan did with his. I don't know if he... It's not in the album or whatever, but he was, he had the ability to do whatever he wanted to do. I don't think Van ever did anything unless it was good. <laughs> and come back, and you imagine coming back from that wreck he had and, and the win and everything. I mean, that was, that was quite, you know, an unusual thing about someone like that. It just said that burning desire, that killing instinct, that will to win, and that's what he did. Yeah. What, uh, just as a question on equipment, you know, with your flat and shorter swing did you have to have your club set up in any certain manner did, you know upright flat or standard or did you bend them around well, i like i like the toe of it down a little bit more i don't want to heal them because when you hit that ground a lot of the companies made that made it tight i don't know if they call it flat or upright or whatever but the heel is running down and it goes a little up and when you hit the ground it closes the toe up it keeps the ball from going to the uh, fading a lot yeah and so, but I did not want that. I wanted to throw up because I wanted my hand and the heel to hit together. Yeah. You know, right down, you know, at the same spot when, you, when that ball in and would go straight off the club. It wouldn't, you wouldn't have to worry about hitting the heel on the toe. And that's the only thing I really ever had. And I like to have my grips just a little bit bigger. Okay. And what about, uh, what about persimmons? How did you uh, choose them when you played? Did you just like the look of one? The, what was that? I'm sorry. Your persimmon clubs that you Used? Did you just pick one out by the look of it, or the you waggled it a few well, times? Yes, a lot, of, a lot of that, and then. Um, but uh, we used to, we used to be able, you know, to rub it on our face and try to keep the moisture in there because a lot of times when it rained and you didn't have head covers on there, the the, the, the rain, the water would soak in the, in the persimmon and it would pick up a bunch of points. Right. So it was heavier one time and uh, lighter the other time. So those are the bad things. But most of the time, when we ever went over to play in the British Open, we always got our driver and a putter in our hands, just in case they lost their clubs. Because then you had a putter you've had for a long time, 
you found a driver that you liked and you've had it for years and but you never saw another one like it. But today, if you lose your clothes, you pick up the phone, you know, and call it, call the place and they'll have you set tomorrow the same thing. Ever's a net, but I've got a question for you. Uh, obviously, you won 20 times out on the PGA Tour and on the Senior Tour. Um, did you ever win when you weren't playing your best, when you felt that you weren't on your game, but you managed to get it together and stay ahead and win? And how did you do that? Well, I think you have different things in your mind. You've got to know, now, one year in Orlando, Florida, I said 66, 66, and I had about uh, four strokes. and did not think I could even finish in the top ten. I could feel my game going down. Other times, I'd shoot 70, 70, and be, be four or six strokes behind, and I thought I could win on 71st, 72nd hole or in the playoff or whatever. I could just, be, I could feel it all together. It's hard to get it on top to keep it there all the time. But it's, again, you just have to work at it. One of the things I did, I worked hard. I'd always practice at least an hour before I played, and if I finished and the time was there, the, the sun and everything, uh, I'd try to practice two hours on the things that I did that day. So I was always sharp about knowing what I, my, my swing, I knew. One thing I did, whenever I hit a good shot, I knew what I did. When I hit a bad shot, I knew what I did. But most of the amateurs today, you know, they hit a good shot, they don't know what they did. They hit a bad shot, they go back swinging the same way. <laughs> but um, it's just being able to keep your game in shape. And there were times when I would get seven, eight, nine under par, and then I would, I said, well, wait a minute, if I, if I make a couple of more birdies, you know, three or four more birdies, I can shoot, you know, 59 and 60, you know, and boom, boom, you make a bogey. But then I'd get seven, eight under par, and I said, well, how you stand, Doug? I'm, I'm in par, i got to go make a birdie. So I'd go make a birdie. I said, well, how do you stand now? I mean, but, you know, but these are little things you tell yourself. You don't want to get out there and get too much pressure on you. And uh, because that's not the, the, the thing that you really want to do and try to do your best. Yeah, sometimes not looking forward is a good thing, is it? Just play each, uh, each shot on its merit? Well, you've got to be able to, to feel like, you know, when you get out on the practice team, you, you know who you are. And there are times you just feel it, you know, it's just there that day, and you get a good putting touch, and it's the sleep that you got. And I did a lot of practice, and when I'd wake up in the morning, I'd just lay there for 10 or 15 minutes. I could just visualize my swing going. And those are the type of things that, you know, the average person never knows, you know, because they don't even know what their swing is. And much less to be able to analyze it, you know, in, a, in the kind of just in your, in your head. Because you can't do it unless you, you can feel it. And that way I can visualize it and I can feel it. So there's a lot of little bitty things like that, but I think the most of all is that you want to be able to just have that desire to know that you're playing well. Says I can win today. And just think about Hogan. Hogan, because you know that's what he said. And he was really a true winner. Well, unfortunately, there's not a lot of footage around, you know, from those days, the, the tournaments. They're very hard to find, but we... Uh... One of my favorite things was the shell matches, and I know you played in a few of those. This gives us a great look at some of the players of that era. Uh, you got any good memories from them, who you played against, and uh, whether you won, and the cities you visited? Well, I played in a lot of those matches. I played a great match with Billy Casper. We tied. And I played um, the only individual match I lost was one year to Chichi in Puerto Rico. And it was, um, uh, he, he beat me by one stroke. 
at three foot, I think the sixteenth hole, and and I lost it, lost it by a stroke. But uh, there was a lot of great shots. I mean, a lot of great shows that I did on that thing. I played Ernie Bertel in Tudor Sound, Sweden, one year. I played Peter Alice, I think, in Portugal, and um, one year I played the, I think Charlie Shepard and Dave Thomas down in in um, what was it? it? Was in South America, Mexico, or someplace. I remember they birdied the first two holes, but I ended up shooting 66 and beat them all. But so those things were great shows to be able to, to play, and we certainly enjoyed them. And uh, so, but that's the way that that's the way that we were back in those days. So. Esquire magazine named you one of their best dressed men in 1973. How did you come about wearing those colorful clothes that you did? Well, the clothes that I wore, there was always a, a thing about Doug Sanders. He wanted to be a little brighter and, and everything. And I've always had a thing about clothes, even though when I was a young man, didn't have any money, I used to save my money and send a pair of blue jeans. I had to get them 25 cents to get them laundry with a little crease in them to put the starch in them. I thought it looked better. Of course, never having any shoes when I was growing up, it was, a, it was a thing to be able to have a lot of shoes, which I certainly did that before the, the big rock balls on me. I've had plenty of those, I think 259 pairs, something like that was the most I've had. But, so that's kind of a, everybody's had kind of a dream of something about them, you know, and so that's the way that I started to close in. But they didn't, uh, Jimmy DeMerrick, he was the one that started a lot of the colors, but he wore Hawaiian colors and this and that and the other, but he never put the shoes and everything together with it. So I started doing this, and all of a sudden, a guy, friend, a good friend of mine, Lloyd Pritchard, he named his son after me, and he and I, we won the um, Bing Crosby Poem one year. And he said, Doug, you've got to do something about the shoes. So then I started having something about it and going to the shoemakers and having them do this and that together. Then they all caught on and they wanted a big part of it. So they started making a lot of my colors and everything for me. And it was one thing for another one that just led, led into it. But once I just started doing something, I don't want to let go. I want to just keep going better and better and better. So that's part of me about golf and everything I've done. I like that. I don't want to do it halfway. No, I think you look so great. I kind of get started in all the clothes. <laughs> Yeah, I think it looked fantastic. Good to have some color out there. I wanted to ask you a question that you taped your fingers together. What was uh, the reason for that? Was there anything behind that? Well, I, I, uh, yeah, because I had the, my first finger down from uh, from my other finger, my right hand, and I'd hit so many shots down with it, my, I started to get a little crack in between my fingers. So, I mean, it got so sore that I could hardly swing, so I put, started putting the tape around them to keep them from, from the crack getting any bigger and deeper. Right, and you're webbing. So that was, that, I didn't take them all, I didn't take them all way together. I just had them with it, you know, you wouldn't hit that shot and would jerk the one away from the other one enough to, you know, start to crack. It's almost like a little fever boost you? when you hit. You know, you can do it and kind of hold it together and it gets better soon, but if you get pushed in the park, you know, it takes a long, long time to do it and very sore. So that was the reason I did the, I did the tape on there. Okay. Uh, can I ask you a question about your swing again? We touched on this yesterday, how you said you had a wide stance and that helped you with your power. When you swung through, did you feel like you uh, hit with your hands, body, or both? No, yes, yes. Everything is together. You can't become a hand player, body player. You know, you either do this or that. It's got to be a unit. There's something that to work together. Nothing about golf is it's, uh, it's, uh, natural. Everything about golf is... It's 
on that, so you got to make your shoulders go underneath and you this and that and the other. But, you know, basketball and baseball and football, all those things, you know, they have one way to do it, and that's basically the way it is. So, but in golf, you got so many different shots all the time that you have to make up for it. So in basketball, you've know, got shorter shots and longer shots and everything, but in golf, you got to make it uh, stop, you got to make it roll, you got to chip it, you got to do all the different things to it. So that's the reason, one reason that the game of golf is so, is so difficult. But it's just a, the fact of being able to have a wider stance and a shorter swing, it gave me a lot more consistency. And after playing for years and years and years, I feel like a great forearm. And I, I, don't, I don't know, I, I think it was 21 driver shares I broke it on the downswing. And but, you know, you see pictures of my swing there, and the shaft is bent so much because I generated so much speed coming down. And normally, whenever I hit the ball, the shaft just broke about six inches above the head. So you can tell there was a lot of a lot of strength there. But again, I think it's absolutely ideal for a weekend player because there's so little of it to go wrong. And that's what you want to do when you start out or even become a better player. And a lot of the guys you've seen today, their swing has gotten a lot shorter. They're bigger, they're stronger, and they don't have to bring it back so far to get a lot of power as they used to have to do. So that has made them a much better player and more consistent player. That's that's fantastic. Um, talking about the you know your wide stance and everything, do you do you think uh, you've probably used them of late the plastic spikes, soft spikes? Do you think they hurt a golfer by not being able to grip the ground as much as the old steel ones? The today's uh, soft spikes or the plastic spikes, do you think that they hurt a uh, a golfer today by not being able to grip the ground as well as we could with our no, steel? No, I don't. I don't think so because they're very they're very uh, stable, and they don't really. Whenever they turn, it, it's not you know that you have to turn all down in there to bust the grass and everything. It's just a hold on there to just keep it from sliding. So I think the, the grips of the uh, spikes that they have today is is uh, certainly. Uh, better to have them like that than they are to walk on the greens and get them all chewed up and they just move their feet a little bit it tears up the greens and you can't go up there and patch all that stuff down Yeah. so it has made a big difference in putting and I don't think it's made a big difference in, in swinging okay I got one question for you about the rules. I remember you were leading a tournament in Florida one year and got disqualified I believe for not signing your card or something and there's there's been a lot of rules well <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, rules are, are made that you've got to have certain type of rules to be able to, to play. And um, they used to be able to come and get you in the, in the uh, clubhouse or, you know, up at, when I, hey, Doug, you've got to come in here and sign the order, uh, sign the scorecard order. But they sent out a thing, now, the week before that, or that week, saying, you know, look, we're not going to do this anymore. If you don't sign it right there, you're disqualified. And I kept uh, playing that day, and I had played real good, and I was... I don't know, I was, um, oh, I think I said 60, 67, 63 or something like that. And I think I gave her about four strokes and the rest of the field by seven. Whenever this, uh, and we, this is the time we started on one and ten. They just started that. So we started on ten rather than one, so we finished on nine. And now that the, the, the uh, the gal and everything's still sitting around there and, and we had we couldn't run back in, you know, get back behind the gallery to sign our scorecards or whatever. And I slipped over the next to the gallery there to check my scorecard. And this lady said, Mr. Sanders, please sign my autograph. I said, I've been waiting for years to get this. And then the meanwhile, they all said, hey, come on, turn your scorecard in. 
your mistakes or your misfortunes yeah would would you um you know obviously there are a lot of rules to cover in golf do you think there's some you know if there's any rules you would change just to make it easier for your rev uh, your average player to get around the course uh, no but some of them you know are very very um, they're a little bit you know here and there you know it's a little hard you know somebody getting who was i got this quarter not too long ago uh, Harrington or Viegas? Yeah, he was walking in the sand trap and didn't realize it was a sand trap. And okay. It was because all of the dirt and everything was down there. And I think, as I, as I, if I think I'm correct, uh, that he grinded his club or something out of it. I don't know what it was. But, but those things can happen. But whenever you ever have a question, then you should stop and ask about it. So there's always official around someplace. You have to wait five minutes or ten minutes. It's better than getting disqualified. Yeah, that's right. So the rules are made to be broken, but sometimes you break them, you have to pay the penalty. All right, good. Yeah, very, very much so. Uh, got one question, final question for you. Uh, obviously, I'm not going to talk about the British Open unless you want to. That was obviously a, a big, big occur- occurrence in your life. You know, most of us dream to have a to win the Open. Unfortunately, it didn't pan out. But I'm going to talk about 19... 19- well, there, uh, there was so many things happened that day. Okay? I've always had a thing about the white tea. It's always been five to me. And here I am on... I had a great bunker shot, and Jack McClough said that's the greatest bunker shot he's ever seen in competition. One of the bunker shots. And, uh, well, that might have been in the playoff. But anyway, I'm coming up. Uh, with one stroke there, and just as I saw you, the team I brought up, the caddy hand me up to Tony Lima. She says, Doug, use this and, and, and uh, for our buddy Tony Lima. Well, I was going to be on the plane with Tony when it went down. And right at the last minute, I said not to do so. Thank God for that. 
but I didn't want to use it. But then I said, oh, go ahead. And then I, I used it, and I thought about it going down the fairway. I said, no, this is just stupid, you know. Then. Well, I got down there, and then I walked up to the green, and I thought I'd just do that, give the gallery over there something to talk about. I never thought about making vibes or anything like that. But I just got away from all my desire to stay there, you know, and grind and burn and win the tournament. And then whenever I hit the ball on the green and I put it down, I'd always thought about, you know, Doug, you always should put your putts out first. But you shouldn't have done that because it was rude of me if I had put it out as I did because Trevino had about a 12-foot of birdie, which he made later after I missed the thing. But if I'd have made it, they'd all started cheering, cheering everything, and it had been Trevino. And I got over and looked down there, and I thought I saw a little brown thing. I thought a piece of dirt, and I looked down where the grass had burned. And the people at the left started laughing. I said, well, you know, they don't, I'll ballot them last. I'll ballot the other side over there. And then Doug, yeah, you better make the ball. Well, you've been here too long. Oh, go ahead, now, do something other. And all these things have gone through my head. And, uh, and of course, you know the results. I end up missing it. And then the next day, I got beat one day, one shot in the playoff. But, Everybody says that you'll always be remembered. They'll always know you from this answer. But I said, look, give me the two or three hundred million. I'd have made it. I don't care if they know me or not, you know. <laughs> but I do care if they know me. And, of course, that was, I'd already lost the British Open by stroke before. And I lost U.S. Open by stroke. I lost the PGA by stroke. And one year, by the British 16th, all of the Masters out of one hit. So the only thing I needed to do was win one major. And now... There's only been three pros who turned pro in the last 38 years in the world of more tournaments than I'm not even in the Hall of Fame because I don't want a major. But neither did Chi-Chi and uh, Charlie Shepard, some of those guys. They don't want a major either, but I don't. I know I'd have been in there. And maybe someday they'll put me in there after I double book at a big hole. But uh, I don't know, but I wish I was in the Hall of Fame. Well, you get, you get my vote. But anyway, <laughs> those are the type of things that happen. You just have to take the bitter with the sweet. And just keep your head up high and just keep moving on and trying to help some people not make those mistakes that I made. Would you say 1961 was your best year? You won five times and came second in the U.S. Open and third in the PGA? Well, yeah, and then uh, Palmer beat me in the playoff at the Phoenix Open. And I left it just right on the edge of the hole on the last day for 61. If the ball had fallen out, it would have been a 61, and Palmer made a better throw for a good timing. And he beat me in the playoff the next day. But yes, 61 was a great, great year. And um, I, I lost all those tournaments and everything. I lost the playoffs and so forth and won five tournaments. And yet I only won 56000 for the whole year. <laughs> I just looked that up to see if you had won the money list, but it said Gary Player won the money list that year. I couldn't believe that after all that many wins and high finishes. Yeah, I think he beat me by about $1,000. I think he was... Leading money winner by fifty six or fifty seven thousand, something other. But uh, look, let me tell you, money could never bought the fun we had, bought the enjoyment we did. And I've had the pleasure of being with presidents and kings and staying at the White House and Count David and going all over the world and doing this and meeting with the astronauts. I mean, what else could a man ask for? You couldn't buy what I had. And I just, if I, let me tell you something, if I had an option tomorrow, it's a drug you're going to die today, but you can come back. Anybody's going to want to come back as, I'd come back as me again. That's how much I think I have lived in this life. I don't know of anyone that I would think there's any day that's living better than I have, even though I didn't want to major. But there's a lot of things you can do along the way to have some kids and all the other things. 
that makes you feel just as important as you did if you won a major. Well, I appreciate everything you've done for me over the years and getting the opportunity to catch up again. I'd love to come and hang out with you and play some golf one time if we can get around to doing it. And Well, I would love that. Just give me a call sometimes and get over there, big boy, and uh, we'll go out and play a few holes. And, of course, you've got to play from those real back tees, and I get to play from the ladies' tees, and all my quiet. <laughs> it was a funny story about that. The guy was totally looked up the window and saw the guy down on the ladies' tee, and he said, sir, would you please go back to the men's tee? He took a practice swing and the post said, would you please go back to the men's tee? The guy looked up at him and said, will you shut up and let me hit my second shot? So, <laughs> that's the way it goes sometimes. But let me tell you, this game can, I mean, it's just so wonderful to be out there, to be with people. And it doesn't make any difference how old you are or how many strokes you got. You can still play and be competitive. And there's nothing like this game. So with that, I just wish you the, the best in everything and to all the people that's maybe will read this or hear it. Just God bless them and just remember one thing. Find a club to swing slow. Well, that was awesome. I hope you enjoyed listening to Doug's opinions. I've always been a firm believer in listening to people who have been there and done it, no matter what their career path is. Doug certainly falls under that category, and his insights will be invaluable to my listeners as they continue to work on their games and improve their games. It was apparent in his tone he's disappointed to not be in the Golf Hall of Fame. He should definitely be reconsidered for that honour in future ballots. In my eyes, he's already in the Hall of Fame for the experience he brought just about for me in my own career. I love how he conducted himself with a realisation that golf was just a game, and the bigger picture for him was to make every person he met to come away a better person themselves for the experience. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed and great golf to you all.